0: Then they gave him wine mingled with murder to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says... And he was numbered with the transgressors, quoting Isaiah 53 of the Old Testament. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. We've got Jesus right there where they're going to crucify him, Golgotha, place of the skull. Even now, if you go to Israel on a tour, most tours end with the tour group going to that bus stop by Damascus Gate, where Golgotha is, the place of the skull. And I can testify it sure looks like a skull right there on the one of the highest points of Mount Moriah there, the Temple Mount. It's incredible. It's outside the old city and there's an Arab bus depot there and it's just amazing to see it. You just it's it looks like a skull. It's the place of the skull. It fits the description. And Jesus was brought there outside the city with the other criminals, Simon, Sirenian, carrying his cross. And they get there. And so he's beaten beyond recognition right now. He's been beaten so bad that he is not recognizable for who he is. And now the crucifixion is going to begin. And we see the words crucified repeatedly. Verse 24, they crucified him. Verse 25, they crucified him. Verse 27, they also crucified the two robbers. And then in verse 32, they said that the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, which of course is where they crucified him. And those who were crucified with him reviled him. So we've talked about this quite a bit last week, and just we'll touch on it briefly again, that crucifixion was the Romans' way to instill fear and terror in the, in the people, and when conquering people conquer other people, they usually find some mode of apparatus to strike fear and subject the people based upon fear, and the Romans came up with the crucifixion, and as they conquered European tribes and into the east and pressed toward Pakistan and that region, all the different places that they went, North Africa, crucifixion was very effective. It was, uh, normally people that were crucified were crucified naked, they were hung there naked, They're beaten and hung, and they live for a while. And it was to just debase humanity to the lowest level with fear. And as as terrifying as it sounds and as horrific as it sounds... It's really nothing new under the sun because the Assyrians, of course, they did horrible things considered even worse than the Romans when the Assyrians conquered people. They'd strip their skin publicly. They did all, you know, there's just, humanity is so sadistic and so demonically inspired in its brutality. You could, I always say this, don't overestimate good in anybody and don't underestimate evil in humanity. This is a horrific scene. Being Christians and being a church, we almost take for granted the cross and the crucifixion. Your mind has to go somewhere really dark, to accept these things as being normal, to to curse anyone who's hanging on a cross. You have to be so filled with rage and malice and so reduced to a form of beast, beastly existence. In fact, Paul would say to those enemies in his timeline that they're brute beasts. And the prophet Jude would describe people as being animals and living in an animal plane, two-dimensional, devoid of the knowledge of God and the fear of God. And that's what you have here. But it's amazing, it's to religious leaders. We talked about this last week. Their greatest responsibility, their greatest moment that could have been in their life was to bear witness to what John the Baptist said. We have seen him bear witness that this is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who takes away the sins of the world. But they did not. They rejected him. They rejected him fully and totally. And so we have now this text that everything from Genesis chapter 1-1 moves toward and everything from Revelation chapter 22 of Maranatha, even so come Lord Jesus, it comes back to it. This is the apex, the high tide watermark of the entire Bible, Jesus Christ being crucified. But you do have to say this mountaintop holds itself to Jesus' resurrection in the next chapter as well, because the two go together as the gospel. But this is the apex. The Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, before God ever spoke this universe in time, space, and matter, pre-existing triune nature outside this dimension, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. This is the plan all along where perfection established would be lost and a means of redemption established for the redemption of our souls is costly that runs the church age in this timeline that we're in right now until the king comes for us and then establishes the kingdom in which there will be perfection restored where there's no more tears, no more sorrow, and the new Jerusalem and the the tree of life is all it's all restored. And it's not just gonna be restored what was lost in Genesis chapter three. It's gonna be better. Because God just doesn't rebuild a car that's been dinged up. He gives a new car. The future is better in the Lord. So what was even lost in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what's restored in the kingdom age is greater than that because we go from glory to glory. And it is this act, it is these events on this day that brings us into glory. It is the blood of God on the cross that the nails drove through being crucified that brings us into a opportunity to be forgiven of our sins in Adam, all sin and die. And we transfer through faith in Jesus Christ because God made him who knew no sin become sin for us that we could become the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. And so his perfect life is that sacrifice for us with his crucifixion. And he's having nails driven his hands for our sins and his perfect substitution, his righteousness, even to the breathing of the last, is reckoned to our account. It's grace... It's mercy and grace. It's mercy because Jesus dies and takes this crucifixion for us, and it's grace because his righteousness is imputed to us. We don't get the wrath. We get the righteousness imputed to us. It's the two for one, and it is incredible. Body of Christ, worship generation, we live in him because of these events on this day. This is the greatest event. This is the definition of love, and the whole universe revolves around this text that we just read and this story. It is, as the movie said in the 60s, the greatest story ever told. This is it. This is why we sing these songs. This is our redemption. We're not a club. We're not a political party. We're not a sports team. We're praising Jesus because he saved us from our sins, and we're going to heaven, and has not yet revealed what we will be, but when he comes, we will be revealed in his glory with him, and it's because of this event. Now, this is God in contrast to humanity, because Jesus is the king of the Jews. That's the inscription, the accusation against him. And he is the king. We talked about that last week as well. He is the king of the Jews. And he's the king of kings. And he's coming in glory. First coming, king of the Jews. Second coming, king of kings. And they mocked him. And they said, aha, which is the most insulting phrase you can say in the Hebrew culture. In the Psalms, it talks about this. They say about me, aha. And it's, it's this, we don't really understand the full connotation of aha. But it's the ultimate mocking and despicable statement to make in the culture of the biblical time from a Jew to another Jew. These religious leaders, these people looking at the king, got himself on the cross and they say aha and they mock him. But what about Jesus? What about Jesus here? Because see we know when we think about this event, this historical event, that God so loved the world he gave his son. So the motivation of Jesus to this moment is love. We know the, the son always does those things that please the father. And so he said, not my will, but thy will be done. If there's any other way, but not my will, thy will be done. Please let this cup pass from me. But if it's not any other way, thy will be done. He lived the Lord's prayer and he gave the Lord's prayer because he said, not my will, but your will. And the Lord's prayer is your kingdom come, your will be done. There was no other way. This was the way of redemption. And there at the cross, when we see scripture fulfilled, as they're driving the nails in Jesus' hands and feet, and as they're raising the cross, and as the Romans, uh, the guards cast lots for his garment, we read something that really gets my attention in verse 24. They crucified him, which is the context of what we're talking about. They divided his garments, casting lots, or, you know, like rolling the dice, uh, cards, scissor rock, paper, kind of a thing. To determine what every man should take. Oh, and isn't that humanity? What every man should take. The Romans take Israel. They take Jerusalem. They take the gold from the temple. The Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. They take the holy articles. Assyria conquers the north. They take the ten tribes. Man takes, 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 takes. That's what we do. It's a human nature. If you could look at maps from 1850 to right now of Europe, all the different changes, all the different wars that happened. Well, let's go to 1800. Let's go back to Napoleon. Let's go right there to Waterloo and those things. And you see how many times the boundaries and the borders of Europe have been redefined. It just goes on and on and on. Like if you understand human history, just the last 200 years in Europe how the borders change. And then if you study the history of the West and how, you know, in the 1600s, the different Indian tribes were taken from each other. Then here come the settlers. They take from them. They take from him. These people take from them. They take from them. It's a taking world. The Aztecs took from people and other tribes and then the Spaniards came and took from them. It's a, it's a taker's world. Jesus said that the, the, those of the world, they lord over one another. Well, the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all, which is giving and this is my main point on this passage that we're reading right now that the clearest mark that we've passed from death to life, the clearest mark that we're a new creation in Christ is that we've passed from pride to humility. We've, pride from being, we've passed from being the sin of our universe to the servant of the one who rules the universe. And it's not me enthroned in my heart, but it's Jesus Christ enthroned in my heart. And it's not about me and looking out for number one, like the book in the 80s said, but it's about serving the king and dying and serving all, that the greatest of the kingdom is the servant of all, that Christ is number one and Christ is enthroned on our heart. And that's the distinction of someone that's truly been born again. When someone says they're a Christian and they're the center of their orbit, I question their rebirth because that's the old man. You show me someone who's born again, you'll see someone who's growing in humility and grace and mercy and peace, and they're a giver, not a taker. They're givers. They give of their time. They give of their prayers. They give of their words. They give of their lives to serve the king. And in serving the king, they give of themselves for humanity, like Mother Teresa in Calcutta or something, or Amy Carmichael in India. That's the mark of being born again, is we give. We don't take. See, a is never satisfied. I mean, here's the Son of God on the cross, and they're casting lots for who can take from a man who's been wrongly condemned to death man, praise God for grace, and praise God for the second birth. Because Jesus Christ is on the cross giving while humanity is at the foot of the cross taking. And we want to be the givers. We want to give love. We want to give grace. We want to give mercy. We want to give compassion. That's what we want to be. You can never go wrong by having a disposition to give to the Lord all your first fruits and to give as unto the Lord all the first fruits that he calls you to give in humanity. We just read in Colossians the other night on Saturday night whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, giving thanks in all things. And then it goes on to say later on, which we'll get to on this Saturday night, that do it as unto the Lord, not unto men, knowing that from the Lord you'll get your reward. We want to be generous people. We want to be generous. If, if we are generous with our time and our commitment with the Lord, and he's truly Lord of our time, we will find that we'll be givers and generous with our time and service to the Lord as unto the Lord, to the humanity and the people he calls us to serve. So many people see religion as a means to an end by which they take. And I know that's not you here tonight. I know that's not our disposition, that's not our culture, that's not our DNA, and it's certainly not the kingdom. But we know plenty of people that are like that. You know the book of James? He said, just why don't you accept the wrong? Just let it go? Why do you take go to court and you just like just let it go? Isn't it better just to accept the wrong? Just let it go. Like, is God not able to? Does he not own the cattle on a thousand hills? Is he not able to let things go? You just can't outgive the Lord. You can never go wrong. If you, if, when you come to what you don't know, you fall back on what you do know. And the spirit of God and the heart of God is to to give. God so loved the world, he gave his son. But this we know, love that Christ died for us while we are yet sinners and enemies in, of God. It's like we can just never go wrong when our general disposition is to serve God, love God, serve others, and love people. And And to accept the wrong and just let it go and, and let the Lord deal with that and trust that as equity and investment for all eternity. Because I can promise you tonight in Jesus' name that if people nail you to a cross and take from you what is yours at the foot of the cross and you forgive them, because Jesus said in the other gospels, Father, forgive them. They don't they do from the cross. If that's you, I promise you, you are blessed for all eternity. And whatever was taken from you, the Lord will still restore a hundredfold in the kingdom age to come. He'll restore that. It's never about the money or the wealth or being wronged or slandered or maligned. It's about loving people, forgiving people, and being prepared to be like Christ for the kingdom and the kingdom age. And everything's a test to make us like Jesus. And sometimes God allows people to take from us because he's trying to get, in some cases, he's just trying to remove something from our life and he'll let someone take it. But like John the Baptist said, a man or a woman can see nothing unless it comes from the Lord. When we breathe our last and we get to the end of our life, and if we're in assisted living and we're really fuzzy about our life and who we are and where we live and what we do and what year it is, and you don't even care who the president is because that's the way it ends up, I really hope on that day when you breathe your last, if that's you and you get that far, that it, the Holy Spirit can see of your life that you were a giver in Jesus' name and not a taker in Adam's name. Verse 24, that's all you need to see. Jesus Christ on the cross dying for our sins and humanity taking. Taking is the phrase. We're givers. God saw the world. He gave. We give. We serve. We love. We forgive. We build equity, and we trust God to make straight all the crooked paths that could ever come against us, and we pray that people would forgive us for all the foolish, stupid things that we've done to them in our own ignorance as well. That's the mark of maturity from people who serve the Lord, pick up their cross, and die daily to Christ on the cross with him, and they learn the heart of God that the view from the cross looks like in our interactions with people. We read on in verse 34. So Jesus was crucified at nine, 9 in the morning. The third hour is 9 in the morning. Then at the 6th hour, verse 33, is noon. And we see the darkness, the supernatural darkness, came on the land. The other Gospels tell us of the earthquake at the same time. And the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon to 3, it was dark, like an eclipse or something. It was, just, it was dark as something was happening. I mean, he was supernatural. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani." Which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that's a quotation from Psalm 22. It's a messianic psalm, prophetically speaking, what Jesus would say on the cross, from the cross, a thousand years before he went to the cross through King David when he wrote that psalm, Psalm 22. Some of those who stood by verse 35 when they heard that, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. This is the glimpse that Mark gives us of Jesus in the final moments on the cross. He explains the supernatural, what's going on with the darkness over the land, does not include the earthquake. And this phrase that Jesus said. Now, there are recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, different words and phrases Jesus said from the cross. So I would like to connect some of those phrases along with this one. In Luke's gospel, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So he spoke forgiveness from the cross. Here, Mark tells us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, which makes clear to us that as Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he experienced what hell is, separation from the Father. He took that separation. And I promise all of us, once we come to Christ, he promises to never leave us nor forsake us. He's with us always, even till the end of the age. Whatever we face, whatever you face between now and eternity, through as a child of God, Jesus Christ will never leave you. He will never leave you. You will never, ever, ever stand alone in any trial, tribulation, heartache, or tragedy. No fear, no terror of man. Nothing. As David said in Psalm 139, if we are in the depths of the sea overnight in the sea, you would not be alone. Jesus would be with you. If you're facing the most horrific accident imaginable, you would not be alone. If, if you're in the Twin Towers and they're coming down, you would not be alone. Jesus would be with you. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. It's the greatest promise because all the gods of the men are idols and they build idols according to their own image. But we serve the living God and the living God indwells us through his spirit. He confirms that we're, that we're his and he's with us always, and he guides us, and he leads us, and he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus Christ was forsaken by the Father on the cross in paying the punishment for our sins, and he experienced hell for us, so we would never, ever have to be separated from the Father, ever again. We're born separated. But through faith in Jesus, we're born into the family. We pass from death to life, and we're his children. In fact, Romans 8 tells us that we're joint heirs. We're in the trust. I'm not talking about your grandparents or your parents. You're in the real trust, the living trust. And I do mean the living trust, the king's trust. We're in the land's book of life. We're joint heirs with Christ, we're told in Romans chapter 8. But we go through things that, you know, that make us worthy of that trust. We don't earn our salvation, but because we have it as daughters of the king and sons of the king, he teaches us things. It's like that movie The Gift that came out about 10 years ago where uh, James Gardner has died, and he's the dad, and he has the estate and the trust, and he's got videos that his son watches, his son who was entitled and, and just spoiled and was a party and all this stuff, and he goes through all these life lessons at each juncture to be able to receive the, the trust, the full amount of the estate, that his multimillionaire dad left behind. And to get to the end of the the journey of the gift, when he gets to the end of it, he understands the value of all humanity and that money is a means by which you can advance the kingdom of God and serve others and make the world a better place, not that you can serve yourself. The son in the movie, The Gift, had to go through the experiences, the value of work. Remember, if you've seen the movie, he goes to the ranch in Texas and he has to build the fence all day and all day and all day. And and then he ends up in uh, Latin America where his dad, you know, had a library or something. And then he gets captured by guerrillas in, in, I think it's like Colombia. It's just like, but the value of life, the value of time, the value of work. He had to learn all these values. And then once he learns it all, he receives all this estate and he uses it to build a hospital. Because during the journey, he met a girl that was dying of a terminal illness. It's a great movie, The Gift. It's a, it's a tearjerker for sure. But in so many ways, it's relative to the follower of Christ. Because we're going to be entrusted with the estate. It is not yet revealed. But when he is revealed in his glory, we will be in his glory. And we're told we rule and reign with him. We have a responsibility in the coming age. And he is equipping us in this journey to become like Christ. And so we have to go through our cross experiences, our trials and tribulations, we have to experience these things, these testings that prove us and refine us so we can be on the cross and look at people who hurt us and say, Father, forgive them. They know what, what they're doing. We, we need to come to that place in life. Now, we'll, but we'll never after this, ever, we will never, ever have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You will never have to say that. But you might be hanging on a cross with people saying, aha. And the Lord will say, Say it. I'll help you. I'll help you say it. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Or, Father, forgive them even though they do know what they're doing. Say it. See, because ours is a transformation work to make us like Christ, being transformed from glory to glory. And again, as it says in 2 Corinthians, when we see Jesus in a mirror, we're not changing him into our image. That's what the gods of men do. Men conjecture world religions and they combine them and they make a little variety pack and they got their gods that reflect them. I'm angry and I want to kill people. So I'll now find a God who's angry and kills people, right? That's what they do. They make, they conjecture gods in their own image. That's what God says in his word. But we, when we give our life to Christ, we see him in a mirror and we're not projecting our image our concept of a God in our image, we're receiving the transformation of his image. We see a perfect savior in the mirror and he's transforming us to become like him in our human experience. And so we go through these things, but he will never leave us nor forsake us because we're in the Lamb's book of life and he paid the price on the cross so we don't have to be separated from the Lord in the journey from our cross that we pick up daily until we go into glory. So we do say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That, that's a big part of it for sure in this journey. Man, if you can forgive people when you're 90, praise God. And if you can't forgive them for when you're 40 or 20, you probably won't forgive them when you're 90. So learn to forgive people. You'll do well in this journey. And then he also said from the cross, it is finished. So that's that complete salvation that he accomplished for us. It is finished. In John's gospel, we read that. It is finished. That's why the whole book of Hebrews is dedicated to, telling us we don't need to go back to animal sacrifices But Christ died once for all. It is finished. And then he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we'll never say from the cross, our cross, why have you forsaken me? Or you don't need to say that. You might feel like he forsook you, but, you know, he'll never forsake you. So you can say whatever you want to say before the Lord because he's 24-7 for you, but it's not a true act. It wouldn't be a true statement. He might not call a timeout. Having coached at elite level, That's what I love about surfing. You can't really coach when they're competing in the water. You prepare them, and then you just let it go. It's not like a basketball game we call timeouts or a football game. Timeout, let's talk. Man, surfing, you prepare people, and they go out there, and they got to make their decisions. I love it. And some people really want micromanagement coaches, like, which way should I take point which way? I'm like, I'm not pointing anything. It's life, man. You need to make decisions. You need to read the ocean. You need to figure it out. Trust your instincts. Situational instincts, we called it. Sometimes the Lord, he lets you apply your faith with situational instincts. Oh, can we, can we call a timeout? You know, it's like, the, I feel like the game's getting away from us. The enemy's on a run. They're on a 12-0 run right now. We were in the lead. Now we're behind. Timeout's like, no, no, just let it play out. Let it play out. Let it play out. Just let it play out. Sometimes you feel like the Lord's letting it play out. You got to figure it out. That's what parenting is. You can't call a timeout in parenting. I mean, sometimes you do, and you give some timeouts, but when I had that Christmas dinner, when Jennifer and I went to dinner with James Dobson, one of the most amazing stories. James Dobson came here for Christmas Eve one year from Focus on the Family. If that's not the most random story ever, random fact with WG, honest to goodness. But he came here because he's friends with the Thorns, and the Thorns came to church here, and then Ryan, his son, was here, and his grandson was here. I dedicated James Dobson's grandson on Christmas Eve. And then we went to dinner, In Newport Beach, I thought, "Hey, this is amazing." I'm sitting next to James Dobson, like the expert on raising children, and it's like ten years. I'm like, "So," and he's a fun guy. Like you just felt like you were just hanging out, like at a food and fellowship, and uh, and I asked him, like, you know, so what's the number one thing you'd say about raising children? And he goes, "I'll tell you right now, it's incremental freedom because you're going to have full freedom. So you have to give them incremental freedom. You have to give, give them room to make mistakes." help them learn, and then expand the boundaries, help them learn, expand the boundaries, because they're going to have full freedom. And if you don't prepare them with incremental freedom along the way, they're just going to completely unravel. You have to give them incremental freedom. It's amazing. Good counsel, though. We learn to say, forgive them, and we're under construction. But he never leaves us nor forsakes us. It's so important to understand that. This was done for us, so we never have to say it. And it is finished. It's a complete redemption. There's no more blood of bulls and goats. The blood of God is sufficient once for all. And he committed his spirit to him. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I think to myself how important it is when we face that last day, that sense of eternity. You know, in movies, there's always just different scenes how people die. We're like, well, this is it. You know, and they just embrace it or whatever. And what, like... You might have a chance to really think, like, wow, I'm, I'm fading, like, with a terminal illness, because that's a slow fade, especially if you, like, it's a painful, like, with cancer or something. It's a, it's a fading almost into a dream state, and you pass. But then it might be sudden, like, you might just have a split-second accident where you didn't even know. I was flying home from the East Coast, and I caught a flight, and the guy next to me was a Newport guy. He's a policeman, and he was talking about his good buddy who was on a motorcycle going up to Big Bear, and he, was passing, he passed a car and was just immediately killed instantly. I've often thought, like, wow, he he was just riding a motorcycle up the 33 or whatever it is that goes up Big Bear from San Bernardino, and like, and one minute he's driving a motorcycle and a split second later he's dead. Like he didn't have a chance to say, like, oh, this is it. When I was in the open ocean in 50 foot seas, I thought this could be it. Like I've got eight hours to figure out how I'm gonna get in back to the beach in 50 foot seas by myself at Waimea Bay, and I calibrated like, okay. I could paddle Hualalai Harbor, but I got to go past all the outer reefs by Himalayas. That's eight miles. I can up in the Kauai Express and up on the island of Kauai, and I'm not going to make that. Or I can just try and time a lull between 50 foot sets and try and get back in at Waimea. And as treacherous as Waimea Shorebreak was, I determined I'd cast my lot with Waimea Shorebreak because at least I could wash up and I could maybe be resuscitated. Going out to open sea was not the option. But I always say in that two hour window where I thought I was going to die in the open ocean. I tell you, I, I know what I did, thinking about I'm going to die. I didn't say, your hands are coming in my spirit. I said, I confess every sin I could think of. I'm serious. I was totally Catholic at the time. A Catholic or evangelical. I, it's a good time to start confessing sins if you think this is it. And I was confessing. I was crying. I was begging for mercy. I was saying, I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. Like, that kind of stuff. I literally, I'm not kidding you, I was pounding down the backs of 50-foot waves the biggest ways of my life, I had to paddle down the backs. They were so big. By myself, I was crying, and I was singing of every naughty thing I ever did in my entire life. And I was saying, I'm sorry. Prepare to meet your maker. We're going to breathe our last. And when we breathe our last, i determined I want to be like, in your hands, I commit my spirit. Like Stephen in the book of Acts. Like, forgive him, forgive them. I see the sun standing. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Because we're not leaving our glory. We're going to our glory. When you breathe your last in Jesus' name, you're not not leaving your glory. We're going to our glory. Forward, onward, upward. Yeah, Lord, I guess it's the end of the journey. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. When you're facing death, think of Jesus on the cross. If you don't know what to say, Lord, into your hands. I commit my spirit. If it's good enough for the Savior, it's good enough for those who follow him. Now, we read on. Verse 38. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last he said truly this man was the son of God and there were also women looking on from afar among whom were Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of James the less and Joseph and Salome who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem So here we go the torn veil In my devotions I just finished Exodus so I just got the full instructions from 1500 BC 1500 years before this event about the veil and reviewing these things in the book of Hebrew, we understand that when God set up worship according to his law with the nation of Israel, he gave them the tabernacle, which eventually was replaced by the temple. And there was the, the, the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies. So when the priests would, and it all represents Christ in different ways, but when the priests would go in and service with the altar of incense and the showbread and whatnot, they would serve in. The tabernacle and the holy place. So they go in and do their chores as unto the Lord and all represented Christ. They'd do that daily. But the high priest, the descendant of Aaron, would go in once a year to the holiest of holies. He'd bring in a, the blood of the first sacrifice for his sins. And there, that holy of holies, was the Ark of the Covenant, which had the Ten Commandments in it, the manna, and Aaron's rod that blossomed. That's what was originally in the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat and the angels, all there, made of pure gold. And when the Jews wandered in the wilderness, it was from that place where God's presence was seen with the cloud by day and the fire by night. So literally from that place, the fire would start to move, and everyone would know, pull up camp, we're moving, God's moving us. He led them by the fire by night and the cloud by day from the holies of holies, it was his presence. And even so, 700 years later, excuse me, 600 years later, when Solomon built the temple and dedicated it, when they dedicated the temple, what happened? The Spirit of God fell upon the, the temple, sac, the temple uh, dedication and all the people praised the Lord and his presence consumed everybody and it was supernatural. He came and literally said, I am with you. He made a covenant with these people. I am your God. You are my people. And He came; his presence came upon the holiest of holies. Now, What separated the holy place, so picture a tent, it's a long tent, two-thirds was the holy place with the stuff here, and then the holy of holies was the back third, if you will, using roundabout numbers, was the veil. And that veil represented the separation between holy God and sinful men. And the high priest would go in once a year and offer the blood for his own sins, and then he'd come back in with the blood of the scapegoat and offer it for the sins of the people. Thus we get the American term and Western world term of the scapegoat. You're the scapegoat, you're fired. You're the scapegoat, we lost the championship, we're blaming you. The scapegoat, someone's got to take the blame, it's the scapegoat. It comes from the Bible. Because they had two scapegoats on Yom Kippur the, that one time a year. They would confess the sins of the people and the priest, the high priest. And one one goat would be sacrificed. The other would be released in the wilderness. And it fulfills what we read about in this Psalm 103, so far as the east is from the west, so far as he removes our sins from us, and get out of here. So, one goat dies for all the people, and the other goat goes into freedom in the wilderness, symbolic of God removing our sins. That would all happen on Yom Kippur, but the priest would have to go through the veil into the holy place. He'd go in twice, for his own sins, the blood, and then for the sins of the people. And that veil, otherwise, you don't go near the veil. That veil, 364 days a year on our calendar, That veil would tell you that when you're at work in the temple, I will be be regarded as holy by those who come near to me. I am holy, you therefore be holy. Leviticus, this morning's devotion. That veil says, world religion, human philosophies, good works, every mouth is shut up before God and his law. Romans 3.19. Holy God, consuming fire sinful men, but Christ is the veil. Hebrews tells us that the veil is Christ. It's his flesh. His flesh was ripped on the cross and the veil is torn. Jesus dying on the cross is that veil being torn from top to bottom. They're one in the same. The veil being torn represents what Christ did dying on the cross for our sins. And it's it's salvation offered from heaven above, not from the earth working up and earned. The veil is torn from top to bottom. God made the way. God loved the world that gave his Son. By grace we've been saved, that through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. No one has turned the veil from the bottom like, hey, we're going to get into God's holy presence because we're good men. We have philosophies and religions where tailors fail. No! If righteousness came by good works and Christ died in vain, but that he did not die in vain is evident that God sent him to die on the cross for us. Galatians chapter 2. That veil for 1,500 years said, And then when Christ died on the cross and the sky was darkened and the earth quaked and he gave his spirit, gave up the ghost as unto the father, that veil was torn from top to bottom, excuse me, from top to bottom. And human history is never the same. All those promises fully fulfilled that moment when Christ gave up the ghost. The veil is torn. God has made a way. There's one meter between men and God, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus said that very night on this same day, I am the way, the truth, and the life. known because of the Father, but through me. And that veil being torn represents all those glorious promises. There's no other name given among men by which you must be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. That torn veil from top to bottom says, come, all who thirst, come, come to me, all you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, it's come, come, come by the blood of Christ through faith in Jesus Christ, that veil being torn. That's a grace we celebrate every time we gather here. That's why we sing praises. Our song's a heavenly song. We sing songs that work for time, and we sing songs that work for eternity because the veil is torn. And, you know, you picture this Romans in turn. He's like... He's been marching with Rome for a while. I mean, he's got 100 soldiers underneath him, right? He's worked his way up through the ranks, probably came through Rome. You know, he's been a part of this, conquering his people, and he ends up getting the Judean assignment. Like, you might get sent to Afghanistan. You might be in Iwakuni, Japan. You might be in the Philippines. You might be, you know, in Iraq. You, know, you might be stationed in Germany at the base. You never know where you're going to go in the military, right? Roman military. He ends up in Judea. It's like, oh, no, the Jews, Right. Yeah, these people are stubborn people. They'll kill you. They'll cut your throat when you turn your back on them in Jerusalem, right? It's like the one deployment you didn't want to get is Jerusalem. And here's this Roman centurion, and picture this. He's seen a lot of people be crucified. He's been a part of a lot of conquering. He's sitting there. This is his job today. Your job today, watch these three people get crucified. It's a Roman thing to do today. And he's sitting there. And he's like, this day just kind of has a different... It's kind of got a different feel to it, you know. Like, it's not your typical crucifixion going on right here. There's something more to this. King of the Jews. What kind of accusation is that? Thief, thief. King of the Jews. Maybe he was at the whipping. Maybe he's at the trial. Maybe Pilate looked at him like, "Hey, take care of business. He's the boss." This guy's the boss of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's under, it's under him, you know? Pilate said, you crucify him to the Jews. So the Jews are like, okay, we'll do this. But Pilate had his guide there. And, and there's the centurion. He's like, man, this is kind of a weird day. Oh, you think so at high noon when it goes dark? Like, he's like, you know, I've been conquering the world for a while. I've never seen dark, darkness for three hours. Then the earthquake all that Roman pride, all that Roman education, what's he say? Truly, this man is the son of God. That Roman centurion confessed what the high priest should have confessed the night before. The high priest tore his clothes and said, blasphemy, blasphemy, when Jesus said he was the son of God. The Roman centurion is like, look, man, I've been around a while. I don't know a lot about religion, but I'm telling you, truly, this was the son of God. You You don't need a rocket scientist to realize this is not your typical day in Jerusalem, and this is not your typical crucifixion. Truly, this man was the son of God. Amazing testimony. I love it. Hey, we're not done with the centurion. We're going to finish with him right now. Verse 42. Now, on evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoned the centurion. And he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he, brought, he bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in the tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled the stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Now we know the Easter story picks up the text, and we'll get Mark 16 next week. But two things I want to point out to you about this day. I just can't get past the centurion. So Pilate calls for the centurion. He's like, hey, what's up? What happened? Is this guy dead? Yeah, he's dead. Now, remember the centurion just said that just truly was the Son of God. So maybe Pilate said, what do you think? What do we do with this body? Like, Give it to this guy, man. Yeah, I just think the centurion, his day is, he goes out of the city and sees Jesus crucified. He says, truly, this is the Son of God. Pilate says, what's up? And he's like, hey, it's, it is. He's, 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 yeah, he's dead. This centurion. And isn't it interesting, when the gospel comes to the nations, it's to a centurion in Acts chapter 10, where a ruler of a hundred, that Peter brings the gospel to the house of Cornelius, a centurion, and they all realize in the church age that the gospel is for every tongue, tribe, and nation, every person on the planet, not just for Jews or half Jews, Samaritans, but for all peoples. Because in Revelation fifteen, excuse me, Revelation chapter five, every tongue, tribe, and nation, everybody, man, humanity is there. Redeemed humanity is there. I just wonder. For the centurion who confessed that truly this was the Son of God, I just wonder if he's not in the kingdom when we get there. I hope he is because he had a confession on the day when everyone was denying and they're saying crucify crucify this centurion said truly this is the son of god that's a confession of faith i sure hope he's there just like the the thief who changed his mind right they both mocked him and the thief's like hey remember when you come into your kingdom jesus said today you'll be with me in paradise that was another spoken word by jesus on the cross The cross just creates things going on, doesn't it? Jesus on the cross gets response, right? Things happen. When you bring up Jesus on the cross, man, all kinds of stuff is going on. But last but not least is Joseph of Arimathea, one of the 70 rulers, not in agreement with the rejection of Christ. Think how much courage it took for him amongst his peer group who crucified Jesus to go into Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. Jesus. It literally says in verse 43, in coming and taking courage, taking courage. You just never know. We talked about Simon Cyrene carrying the cross what that one is like. We need to recognize in our own lives critical moments, divine circumstances, unique opportunities, that God has entrusted to us at certain times and not overthink it, not double clutch it, and just obey the Lord whatever we know is right. And to quote Martin Luther King Jr., it's always the right time to do the right thing. And Joseph Arimathea, who knows what his theology was about Jesus, but he he believed in Jesus, and this man is forever in human history, one of the most famous people in human history, because he went to Pilate and asked for the body at the rejection of his peer group. He got the body. He bought the linen to put him in it, and he put him in his own tomb, the tomb that was prophesied from the Old Testament. For he made his bed with the, with the wealthy, but he was, his death was with the, with the, the criminals. He fulfilled it. He, it's like he was born for this day as well. But he took courage. And I ask, close with this thought. You know who's not in the kingdom, right? You know. I've been telling you for the last couple of years. You know. You know who's not in the kingdom in Revelation. That cowardly. The cowardly are not in the kingdom. There is no room for cowards in the kingdom. The kingdom is made up of men and women like Mary and Deborah and Sarah. Daniel, and David, and Paul. People who step up, who recognize what's going on, and they don't fear men. And if they do, they, sub- they sub- subject that fear to the authority of God. Because it's natural to fear men. But fear God, and you won't fear men. Just that ability to take courage and do what needs to be done and to do what's right. So i am mean like, well, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to offend anybody. You know, uh, uh, I don't want to say the wrong thing. Look, man, just do what's right. Do what's right. If you know God's word and you know the Lord, it's not hard to know what's right. It, it's not rocket science to do the right thing. Take courage. So often for the believer of Jesus Christ, God allows situations in our life and puts us in places where we can bring people together. Or we can resolve the conflicts. Or we can speak truth when no one else is willing to speak truth. And if it costs us our job, it costs us our job. But to do the right thing is always the right thing to do. God has your back. The lesson from Joseph is take courage and do what you can. That's the right thing to do on that day, that moment. And don't miss the profoundness of the moment that God might allow in your life. That's your opportunity to show your faith, your devotion, and your trust in the Lord. Amen. Men.